This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name's David Tiltman. I'm the SVP Content at Walk, and today. As it's our last podcast of 2022, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at some of the wisdom of one of the greatest writers about advertising there is, Jeremy Bullmore. Now, a new archive of Jeremy's writings has just been launched. And if you haven't come across Jeremy before, then this will be a real treat. Here to help guide us to his best thinking, we have Alex Steer, Chief Data Officer at Wonderman Thompson, and Sarah Walker, Global CMO of Essence Mediacom. And in a first for the Walk podcast, they're actually a husband and wife, as well as collaborators on this project. So Sarah, Alex, thank you for joining us uh, for this session. And I guess the the obvious question, maybe for a lot of people, is who is Jeremy Bullmore and, and, and why should we care? So... Alex, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Uh, Jeremy Bullmore is one of the leading practitioners and thinkers in British advertising and has been for the last 67 years. He joined the industry at J. Walter Thompson in 1954 and rose through and then led that business, uh, leaving it in 1987. during which time he'd been head of the creative group, uh, creative department leader and uh, latterly chairman. And since 1987 has still been involved in WPP as part of its advisory board uh, and uh, recently announced his retirement from the industry after 67 years. And Sarah, what about you? If you had to sum Jeremy up in a couple of words, I think he is he is one of the sages in our industry, both uh, a counsel to both kind of leaders of companies. And I think in that period, the number of CEOs that have come and gone through companies that have sought his advice on what they should do, how they should be, is immense. Uh, but also a mentor to junior people entering the industry, um, of which I was lucky enough to be one of them as a, a fresh-faced, kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 24-year-old was suddenly assigned this mentor who was an industry legend, turned up to see him in his office and he just sat down amongst piles and piles and piles of paper and realised that it was the start of this person that knew more about anything than I possibly could about the industry, who has offered advice to people throughout their whole careers and genuinely been one of the people that's seen through our industry from the Mad Men era to the digital age. Um, it's just a wealth of knowledge in both his writing and his interactions with people. He was um, he was described a few years ago by Campaign Magazine as Adlan's greatest philosopher, which sounds like the kind of thing that the advertising industry just likes to say about itself. But I think in Jeremy's case is absolutely correct. And if anything, a slight understatement. Great. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should uh, add that I've got my own connection to Jeremy uh, as a as a callow junior editor. One of my first jobs uh, was to work on a book of his writing. And that's why I, I guess I was so excited to hear about the the, the new Bullmore uh, archive that's just gone live. I think it's at bestofbullmore.com. Uh, and Alex, Sarah, you you were both involved in the uh, in the creation of this. So, so Sarah, what's the background here? So... When Jeremy decided that he was, how do they put it, going to work from home, I think, well, so 
he was finally going to retire his role at WPP. We kind of knew that we needed to do something to mark it. And so there were some discussions around what would be the most fitting thing that we could do to mark the fact that one of the greats in our industry was retiring that helped to preserve some of the amazing impact that he's had, but that didn't turn him into a museum piece. Because I think anyone that knows Jeremy would know that the thing that he would least likely be perceived as is some kind of archaic relic of the past age. So we had various discussions about what could we do that would make his wisdom available to more people because he's written so much over the course of his career, but it's often fragmented, published by different people, in some cases published way before the advent of the internet. How could we curate the best bits of it that were still relevant and make them available in a way that wasn't about pushing his kind of personal reputation, but that celebrated a lot of the things that he'd said that were still pertinent today. And so we had various discussions about the best way to do that. And I think the idea of creating a kind of centralized archive of the best bits of his work came about. And then it's been a process over the last kind of year or so of curating what that should be and then assimilating them, publishing them, pulling out the highlights and creating the kind of amazing site that is a best of all more. Well, that's a great segue into the, the, I guess the concept of today's podcast, which is exactly that, is to take some of that thinking that, you know, in some cases is decades old, uh, but still has real relevance in, in, in today's industry. And as you start to look at it and say, well, well what can you take from this, uh, these pieces and how, how is it relevant to today's industry? So what we're going to do, we've picked out between us five bits of wisdom from Jeremy's work. Uh, and through the, the magic of technology, we're going to actually be able to hear Jeremy uh, speaking each one uh, or those little clips. And then we're going to have a bit of discussion about how each one applies. Let's get straight into it. So uh, the first one is about sort of brand reputation. And uh, Alex, why don't you tee this one up for us? Certainly. So I think this is a lovely and classic piece of Jeremy thinking and writing about the role of brand reputation and the importance of building fame, and in particular, the need to maintain a brand's rep reputation beyond the immediate target buying audience. And it's from a piece we're going to refer to a few times in the course of this podcast, which is called Posh Spice and Purcell, one of his most famous uh, pieces. It was a 2001 lecture to the British Brands Group. Um, it covers a huge amount of ground. We're going to come to it a few times in this podcast. Uh, but let's listen to this specific clip. Real fame implies being known to millions of people who have never bought your records and never will. Stephen Hawking is known to millions of people who will never understand a word he writes and to ten times as many who will never even try to. To the consternation of media planners and buyers in advertising agencies, the same is true for brands. A brand, if it is to enjoy genuine celebrity, must be known to a circle of people that far exceeds what we in the business so chillingly call its target group. It is not enough for BMW to be known only to that 5% of the population wealthy enough even to contemplate buying one. For BMW to enjoy real fame, it needs to be known almost indiscriminately. 
I do not know why this should be. I only know that it is. So, Sarah, why is this so such an important lesson in the current climate? I mean, I think, if anything, I'd argue that it's an even more important lesson today than it was when he wrote it. Um, if you think of the number of conversations we have now around the possibilities that are enabled by targeting, by addressability, by being able to talk in incredibly specific ways to niche audiences, the ongoing discussion about how you balance that with the need to talk to everybody, build your brand beyond just your immediate or most likely customers, I think in a world where we're more and more able to predict who is going to buy us less, next, we become less and less willing to spend money talking to other people. And I think that ongoing tension is becoming even more of an issue for marketers nowadays than it was back in the days where people were talking about broad brush kind of groups that they might be targeting. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? And we've seen people like Paul Feldwick talk about uh, fame a lot in recent years. One of my favourite quotes from Paul is uh, nobody ever created a musical called Mental Availability, which I, I think is a very good way of uh, articulating uh, articulating the need for fame. But how often does this actually come up in, in conversations with clients? How active a debate is it? I mean, Alex, do you have a, a view on that? Oh, uh, all the time and increasingly. And it's, look, it's quite a difficult conversation to have with a CFO uh, a conversation about how you make your brand more famous because it's not a concept that always translates immediately into the things that the rest of a business knows about marketing. And one of the reasons for that is that it's always, to some extent, been priced in. There's always been a kind of hidden fame factor that was a natural consequence of operating in mass markets and mass media. You know, when you had four broadcast television channels, well, only really two that carried advertising to choose from, Fame was inherent to some extent in your media strategy. You could not buy in a way that wasn't overseen by lots of other people. That is no longer the case. You can be incredibly targeted in how you uh, reach people and also how you develop products and solutions for niche markets, particularly if you're selling online. So very often in client conversations, we and they are having to re-engineer fame back into the discussion because what does matter and what Jeremy writes about really powerfully is the importance of preference and predisposition. You know, if you use slightly longer words, the CFO tends to believe you more, but people have to want you before they're in a position to buy you. And the brands that are wanted more at the point when people come into the market tend to be able to command a higher price and they gain market share more easily. And that's stuff that a CFO understands. But in a world of niche markets and often niche media, fame needs to be a deliberate part of the strategy in a way that it perhaps wasn't even at the time that, that Jeremy wrote this first. Sarah, your your uh, essence, which is or essence MediaCom, as it it is is it is now or soon to be, um, which is obviously a, a very sort of cutting edge company in terms of its use of, of digital, its understanding of the modern media landscape. Does that resonate for you as well? Are you having these conversations? Yeah, very much so, because I think there's there's almost a new breed of clients that we're working with as well, who have grown up in that world of digital communications, digital sales, who for whom targeting and addressability and customizing your message to your audience are just second nature. But they don't have the same history in heritage of kind of brand building, fame-based media. And you get into a really interesting world because you can pursue a strategy of quite niche communications saying the thing that you think each group needs to hear very targeted to them 
to a point. But you reach a point where your brand then needs to be recognizably the same to different groups of people to genuinely reach that fame and that ability to bring in new audiences. And I think that's a conversation we have over and over again with clients of the need to make sure you're not just building miniature brands to different groups of people, but that you have got a cohesive strategy that's allowing you to build a brand that can enable some kind of social currency. Like the whole title of that piece is Posh by and Purcell, coming from the idea of wanting a brand to be as well known you can't do that through just niche targeted communications. And so coming at it from the point of view of brands that have born in the digital age expanding out, it's even more relevant to them than brands that have kind of lived through prior ages. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and I love that idea of, you know, it's not just about knowing about something, it's knowing that somebody else knows about something as well. It's that whole idea of reputation and... and, and, and totally. Of, yeah. Um, great. Well, that's a lovely segue into our second uh, our second theme. So, uh, Sarah, why don't you tee us tee us tee up the second theme for us? Okay. So, the second theme that I think is so hugely relevant today is about the importance of building our brands through a holistic strategy, but with flexibility and the understanding that we as brand managers don't control every element of our clients' interaction and therefore the perception that they build of our brand. Great, and this is from uh, this is from 1974, the, the original video that this was made. It's a video called "What Is a Brand," uh, a video that was recorded um, by Jeremy Bullmore with Stephen King, who uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will know is regarded as one of the fathers of account planning. Um, and what, what I love about this is that the the video was at a very specific time and place, you know, so it talks a lot about retailer relationships and things like that. But, uh, but as you say, absolutely relevant for, for the current time. So let's hear the clip. It's not always easy to trace the sources of a brand's personality. Here it's some physical element of the product, there the name and packaging, somewhere else the price or the kind of shop you find it in or the advertising. But beyond any doubt at all, the personality is clearest and strongest when all the clues are consistent one with another. If distribution, price, nature of product, packaging, advertising, promotions do not conflict with one another, if they all unite to form a coherent and consistent totality, then a product is more than a product. It begins to satisfy needs over and above purely functional needs. And if it does that, then it's worth more money. So, Alex, why why is this piece of advice so important today? Well, this is so obviously a conversation that's not just still worth having, but that is probably more important even than it was at the time. Um, Jeremy once said that consumers build opinions of brands the way that birds build their nests based on scraps and straws that they happen to chance upon. And the reality of how people encounter brands nowadays is that there are even more of those scraps and straws and fewer of them can be directly owned and controlled by the brands. You know, so the ways in which consumers are fashioning brand opinions are perhaps even less controllable than they were. But what I love about this, well, two things. First, the advice isn't just give up. You hear a lot of advice now that isn't really advice that says, you know, brands are no longer in control of how people perceive them. Well, that's not the brief. Sorry, that's not the job. The job is to create perceptions that lead to better outcomes for brands. What Jeremy says is that as far as you can, where you can control these things, find ways to make sure that they point in the same direction. 
And that's not always just through matching luggage or absolute consistency of message. We need to be smarter about making sure that all of those brand perceptions add up in the right direction. The other thing I love is the last line uh, in that piece, which is, if it does that, then it's worth more money. And this is a kind of golden thread that runs through a lot of Jeremy's writing and speaking, that for all that we like to theorize and think about brands, ultimately they exist to generate more cash and more profit for the businesses that own them. And I think that's a really nice anchor for everyone in what's an increasingly complicated industry these days to go, look, the job here is to shift perceptions in a way that makes more money for the people who own the brands. And I love the the clarity and focus of that. It's a really interesting point, particularly at a time when, you know, with the world of influencers and all these partnerships out there, often there's this sort of advice to that brands need to give up control somehow or give control to other people. Uh, Sarah, how do you sort of reconcile these these thoughts? It's a really interesting one because I think the tendency that brands have naturally when they are relinquishing control of the messaging to channels that they don't control in the same way that they do their kind of 60-second spot on the telly, is often to focus on the content and want right of veto on exactly what is said. And I think it's interesting if you reflect on what Jeremy and Stephen King were talking about, is maybe they should actually be focusing more on the personality that the influencer is trying to convey about the brand, not the details of what is actually said. Because I suspect, as we all build our mental images of brands, we're not writing down word for word the exact promises that a brand has made. But they put a lot more focus on the kind of the tone of voice, the personality aspects of the influencers they work with, the content they're producing, than I think are the focus of a lot of conversations at the moment. I know even in our world of like launching a new agency, a lot of the conversation that people are focused on is exactly what do we want to say. What, do we, what we need to be arming with people with is how do we want to show up? How do we want to show up? How do we want to act? What's the overall impression we want to leave people with? because they'll be building their own opinions from every interaction with every person they meet along the way. And I can't control what they all say, but I can control our spirit, our personality, our tone of voice. And that's how we're going to build a brand. And you talked about flexibility at the start. How, where, where, does that, where does that come in? Where does that ability, is it just that you, because you have that tone of voice, you have a permission to be flexible or... Or is there something else, some other way you can almost like plan for flexibility? I think you have to plan for flexibility, partly in a world where we've got the opportunity to use to, for more messages, for more types of interactions, to test more things in our marketing. We have to be open to the idea that we can't always know what's going to resonate best, what things are going to perform best, what messages are going to be most meaningful for people and build in the flexibility to manage our brands learning as we go, rather than having, if you think back to the traditional kind of, we come up with a campaign, it's got a very set life cycle, we have a very clear message, and we run everything off that, we now live in much more of an always on world. And the ability that that affords clients to be much more flexible in how they they manage their money, their messages, their media, We'd be stupid if we weren't taking advantage of that and adjusting and updating how we plan to incorporate feedback along the way in a way that possibly wasn't possible before. I think this is a really interesting area and it segues really nicely into the next 
theme, which sort of continues with this idea that there's there's things you can control and things you can't control. So, Alex, why don't you uh, why don't you sort of tee up the next the next idea we're going to hear from Jeremy about? The next theme is something that keeps a lot of marketers and agencies awake at night. I think, which is the relationship between a brand and the brand image and the brand reputation that you build and the actual experience that people have of your brand as users of its products and services. This generates loads of thinking, loads of chatter, often lots of noise. But I think in Posh Spice and Purcell, Jeremy gives us a really simple formula and a framework for thinking about it. Great. Let's hear the clip. Function is the first and permanent requirement for brand success. I shall talk much about brand reputation and added value. But let me first echo a warning issued earlier this year by Niall Fitzgerald in his Marketing Society annual lecture. He identified a manufacturer who starts out by being technologically very advanced and is deservedly very successful. As his market gets more and more competitive, he comes to realize that he needs both product performance and brand character in order to stay ahead. Brilliantly, an image is built for his brand, so that users not only respect it, but feel loyal to it as well. He is even more successful. Then comes the critical stage. He becomes such an enthusiast for the notion of brand personality, and falls so deeply in love with his own, that he comes to believe that competitive product performance is no longer his highest priority. So he neglects to innovate, he neglects to invest in R&D, he stops listening intently for those first faint murmurs of discontent. And for a month or two, even a year or two, his success continues and his profits mount. And then, with savage suddenness, his once healthy brand becomes an invalid, losing share and reputation with precipitate speed. Because when people discover what's been done, that a once-loved brand has taken its users for granted, those users will be totally and brutally unforgiving, and their desertion will have something of vengeance about it. So, Sarah, I'll start with you uh, this time. And Alex said uh, when teeing up the clip that this is something that keeps a lot of marketers awake at night uh, still. Uh, Why is that? Well, I mean, I think if... If what Jeremy sums up is the stupidity of separating your marketing from your product experience, I think one of the things that concerns a lot of marketers in our industry is that they actually now don't have control over a lot of the elements that relate to customer experience. They don't always have control over kind of product development. They don't have control over kind of aftercare and sales relationships. And I think... At the same time that in, in in our industry, the roles within an organization have fragmented, for consumers, a lot of this stuff is coming back together. Because as a consumer, I don't know whether you're a brand talking to me from a sales point of view, from a service point of view, particularly with so many digital platforms around. For me, it's just one experience of the brand, but actually that might be managed by five different people on the client side. And I think that's a real challenge for a lot of our clients is how to manage that complexity and provide a seamless experience that where everything is pointing in the same direction. So 
Alex, what what can a marketer actually do about this? Because as, as Sarah says, it, the ro- roles have fragmented. Uh, a lot of these ideas and these responsibilities are split across a number of different parts of the business. I think one of the most important things marketers can do is show the damage this causes. And this is where actually it's important for marketers and their agencies to be on top of the numbers. But we see this again and again when you dig into brand and customer experiences Two things happen. First, as Sarah said, the customer experience is often fragmented. As a user or a customer, you know that you're being handed off between departments who have never met each other or talked to each other. But second, the customer experience has a tendency to get optimised to death based on a playbook of best practice that has nothing to do with people's expectations or experience of the brand. And that means you might have found this yourself. It's perfectly possible to get two thirds of the way through the journey for booking a flight or taking out a bank account or signing up for a credit card and realizing that you basically can't remember which brand you're doing it with anymore because the experiences all look so much the same. And in removing friction in the lower funnel or the purchase or usage phases of the journey, you take away the things that reminded you why you like and choose and are predisposed towards that in the first place. And that's where marketers have got to start, being able to have a conversation with the business that shows the damage and the attrition that happens when you gradually erode the brand experience through the customer experience. And as part of that, that becomes a requirement on agencies as well. We've got to help marketers not just do marketing, but grow marketing. It's incumbent on us as agencies to be a partner for our clients that help them stand up for and increase the role and value and perceived value of marketing within organisations, because otherwise you end up in this world where experiences get increasingly fragmented and siloed, and that's bad for the brand and ultimately bad for the business too. And so this this sort of brings us back to sort of marketing as the four Ps and that, that sort of idea, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, there's a sense of marketing having to rediscover its role here. Yeah, and I think it has lost that a little bit in many organisations. I think particularly where a lot of sales have been managed in many organisations, sales have traditionally kind of taken over a lot of the direct-to-consumer performance-oriented marketing. And as that's become a much, much bigger part of the mix, along with it, a lot of the more strategic decisions about what we should be doing, where we should be showing up, where we should be on sale, have gradually sort of migrated out of marketing. And I think in organisations that are looking at the future and realising that as an overall Uh, organization, you would be mad to manage your media budget separately from your e-commerce budgets separately. A lot of organizations are looking at that and thinking, we've got to bring this back together. We've got to have flexibility across these things. We've got to manage them in concert with each other. I think there's a real opportunity for marketing to kind of reclaim its seat at the table where it has much more of an influence in where we show up, where we're listed, how much we charge, what the premium we're going for is, if we bring those things back together. But it's not an easy journey for some clients because they've fragmented them to such distant arms of the organization that there's almost different cultures in those teams. Yeah, I completely agree. And that point about digital commerce is a really interesting one. We've we've done a lot of work uh, in 2022 here at Walk around how you align the sort of new world merging world of retail media and all the sort of digital customer experience that that goes alongside that with uh with media budgets and brand and those sorts of things and as you say in a lot of organizations they're just in two completely different uh different parts of the business so definitely a very very relevant one 
Uh, let's go to the next one. So uh, our next theme, Sarah, why don't you introduce our next themes? We're going to change direction a little bit. So the next theme that Jeremy has spoken on at length, um, and this is a lovely clip and summing up, is about the importance of distinguishing between what's important to measure and what's easy to deliver a concrete answer on and how they're not always the same thing. Right, and we're back with uh, Posh Spice and Purcell, that, that lecture we mentioned earlier. So let's have a listen to Jeremy. Brands are fiendishly complicated, elusive, slippery, half-real, half-virtual thing. When CEOs try to think about brands, their brains hurt. And I sympathise. Given the nature of brands and the persistent perversity of consumers, who wouldn't choose to concentrate executive time on simple, rational, quantifiable things like gross margins and case rates and return on capital invested. I believe it to be an increasing human instinct and an entirely understandable, if highly dangerous one, to overvalue that which we can measure and to undervalue that which we can't. There's a great comfort to be found in figures. They give us a sense of, of certainty, however false, in an otherwise chaotic world. Perhaps the time will come when the mysteries of brands will be no more, when everything about them can be measured, valued, predicted, and replicated. Perhaps. But not in my lifetime, nor even, I think, in yours. Alex, why is this such an important point? So I love this, and I always have, and part of that is on a deeply personal level, which is Jeremy, as a practitioner, came from a creative background and was always focused on the creative side of our business, but always had a tremendous respect for good quality measurement. I think there are plenty of people in our industry who say that measurement doesn't matter or it's not important or always try and kind of play it down. I never knew Jeremy do that. And even though he challenges bad measurement, he's not doing that here either. He's not saying that you shouldn't measure things or that what we do is fundamentally unmeasurable. He's just saying that measurement is hard and good measurement is hard and measuring the right things are hard. And look, I think what's interesting thinking about that now, I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been a revolution in marketing measurement in what we can do with you know, high-speed computation, with machine learning, with AI, with all sorts of new techniques that give us new angles on how we know what's really working and what's really driving marketing value in the long term and the short term. But contrast that with the fact that marketing is still often not seen as credible in the wider organisation or, or in the boardroom. We are not getting credit for how good at measurement we are. And I think what I love about this is it puts the onus back on us to make sure that we are really measuring the things that measure, that we're articulating that in a, in a credible way, and we're not getting lost in all of the noise and detail of stuff that, even though it's easy to count, doesn't actually count for very much at all. Sarah, there's a lot of noise out there now, isn't there? I mean, I, you know, you read about new measures like ROAS. There's, there's always some new efficiency measure out there. Actually getting to a, a meaningful effectiveness rather than efficiency measures, it's becoming quite hard, isn't it? And I think we, in some ways, only have ourselves to blame for the lack of credibility that we have um, found ourselves with in the boardroom. Because if you think about how we have approached that revolution in measurement capability that Alex has just talked about, it is by creating a lot of noise about the next, the new thing. And if I was an outsider to the industry, I'd be struggling to keep up 
right? He's like, oh, it was all about attribution. Then it was all about money. Now it's all about this. Actually, it's not a surprise that we don't have a huge amount of credibility with CFOs because there isn't obviously an underlying model of value at the bottom of that, that we might be updating how we measure and the techniques we use as new ones come about. There's a lot of rhetoric where we seem to have flip-flopped around what's most important, what's the kind of metric du jour, which if rather than improving our capabilities to measure things has slightly confused us about what we should be measuring, like whether we can or can't. And so I think we're at a stage now where everyone understands the computational power and the ability to measure things. But I predict we're going to see a consolidation around two or three things that we believe are important that can be measured in a whole myriad of different ways. And I think we need to start building that language of economic value of brands in the 21st century in a way that CFOs can understand, but that we have the ability to measure in multiple ways and update as techniques and computational ability allows. Uh, Alex, what actual steps could a, a marketer take to to get to that point i mean what sarah's describing is like the need for an almost like an industry-wide movement towards this but if if you're uh if you're a marketer in a brand just trying to make some take some first steps what what could you do I think a lot of the time the marketing industry spends too much time thinking about what the rest of the marketing industry is talking about and not enough about what their colleagues in finance or operations or sales are talking about. I think reading Jeremy's work is a really good corrective to that. It reminds you that marketing exists as part of a wider business whose job is to make stuff and sell it and make money from it and and make it all work. So I think what we're starting to see progressive marketing clients do is rather than worry about industry-wide standards, go and have the conversation with their own organization and get some common language in place about what the brand does for the business. Broadly, it helps you attract customers, it helps you convert them into buyers, it helps you retain and grow the value of those buyers. And as soon as you can start to do that, as soon as you can align the organization around what the brand and the marketing budget is for, you can start to put sensible measures in place. And then you can go to town. Then inside the marketing function with your agency, you can come up with all sorts of crazy measurement methodologies that take advantage of all the stuff I talked about earlier. But getting those fundamentals in place, getting the conversation uh, that has the business talking about effectiveness is the starting point. And I think we're seeing that happen more as a recognition that, as we said earlier, very often the different parts of a business have become very fragmented and they're not having one conversation about what marketing is supposed to be delivering for them. Yeah, because there's a wonderful quote in, I think it is Posh Weissens Personal, about the only time that you know the genuine value of your brand is just after you've sold it. Because it's the only point at which it's recorded on a balance sheet. Right? We don't have an accepted way of accounting for the value of a brand, but there's no reason that you can't create that yourselves internally. So how do you prove the value of your brand to your sales team in terms of where they see reductions in cost of acquisition of customers? How do you prove the value of your brand to your pricing teams where they're able to charge a premium, etc.? You can create your own metrics, but don't expect it to come along with some kind of big, and here's how we measure brands, because accountants have been worrying about that for decades, and they're still not agreed on it. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, right, we've got one more theme to get in on this podcast. So, Alex, why don't you tee this one up for us? Yeah, certainly. This is something that was true when Posh Bison Purcell was, was written and first presented 
and is true now that alongside anything else, it is critical for a brand and for a marketing organization to have proper insight and understanding of its consumers and of culture and society at the heart of what it does. Right, let's hear the clip. The poor old focus group has had a thoroughly hostile press in recent years, unfairly, I believe. And the reason for that hostility is a confusion in the minds of many commentators between the knowledge you gain from a focus group and the use you put that knowledge to. If focus groups tell you that the single European currency is regarded with deep hostility, but that corporal punishment has acquired a new popularity, you will deserve every bit of odium hurled at you if, with absolutely no further thought, you pull out of Europe and bring back the birch. But it is irresponsible government and potentially suicidal management deliberately to stay ignorant of the content of other people's minds. You don't have to agree with what you discover. You should certainly not expect people to tell you what to do next. Nor should you be surprised if what people say they want turns out to be very different from what they subsequently choose to do. But you should never find yourself ambushed. Okay, it's a lovely clip. Uh, but Sarah, it, it almost sounds obvious, this, this need for sort of insight and customer understanding. Why, why is this still so important? I mean... Uh, yeah, I think it does sound obvious that we need to use data to help us understand better. But I think increasingly, that's not how we use data today in marketing primarily, whether it's focus groups or surveys, or more likely customer data, behavioral data. So much of what we're doing has actually translated in how we use data to make predictions and fuel actions rather than how we use all of these new sources of data to genuinely improve our understanding and our insight about people. And I think taken to its extreme, we get into the world of kind of ethically dodgy models that try and sell more betting services to gamblers, etc. But even at the, the less extreme ends, what we're doing is cheating ourselves out of potential insight and understanding as an industry by not employing enough insight atop data and leaving so much of the kind of pattern recognition and extraction to machines. So Alex, Sarah's describing, I guess, what you might call an increasingly quant world. What is there still a role for, for things like qual research here? You know, Jeremy mentioned the good old focus group, you know, should, should marketers be doing more focus groups? Yeah, absolutely. There's still a role for it. There's still a role for anything that allows you to get behind the headlines and get behind the surface numbers um, of an aggregated view of what people think. And qualitative methods are a brilliant way of doing that. What I love about this piece is you have one of the most kind of senior and accomplished creative people within our business saying it is irresponsible to stay ignorant of the content of other people's minds. You should never find yourself ambushed. And I think for all that Sarah's painted a nightmare vision of a world where algorithms take over the world, which we need to watch for, I think there's also a nightmare vision of a world where marketing organisations and agencies feel like they don't need to listen to the people outside their organisations. And I think more than anything, this challenges us to see it as a failure of duty if we are not constantly listening and understanding and thinking about and adapting to 
what real people think about our brands, products, and services. And qualitative methods are a great way of getting into that. You don't need a supercomputer. You don't need a PhD. You can sit in a room or go out into the street and ask people, is it as robust as what you can do with a national survey or with a huge data set? No, but it gets an organization talking. And that's one of the most important things and what comes through in this piece as well. And I would argue that it is potentially your best opportunity to get ahead of changes. So if you think about the quote earlier about a brand manager like neglecting his product experience and then the brand falling off a cliff, people's attitudes will generally shift ahead of their behaviours. And whilst you may not see things coming through in how they are acting or their behaviours, if there starts to be a shift in attitude towards your brand, you want to know about it before it starts impacting those things. And I think qualitative methods and focus groups and early research that goes deeper into the why can really help a brand understand potential changes that it might have to fight in the future. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, great way to round off the podcast and a, a great way also to talk about getting ahead of change, which is very, very different to seeing these, these pieces as museum pieces. They are things that can be uh, learned from and uh, uh, adopted uh, even today. Um, I guess I just want to close off. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Alex. But maybe you could both give give me one big thing you learned from from this whole project just to sort of close off the podcast. So Alex, why don't you kick us off? I think what doing this has reminded me of is the core simplicity of what we do as an industry. We create value for organizations by making their brands more valuable to the people who buy them and use them. And that, I think, is a gift. Everything in Jeremy's writing is a gift to people that are rising up through our industry now because it reminds us of the value and importance of what we do in an industry that can often be noisy, inward-looking, self-regarding. It tells us how to find the core, simple, powerful value in what we do and the commercial value that that creates. And it focuses on the things that are really important in order to deliver that. And so I think it's inspiring. I think it's as inspiring now as it was when a lot of it was written. And I think having this archive together is a real source of value for people in our industry now and people who will be in it in the future. Brilliant. Sarah? I think the thing that struck me when looking at Jeremy's work en masse is the importance of what he constantly refers to of a theory of mind. Um, And as an ex-neuroscientist, this is always going to speak to me, but the idea that when we are talking to our audience, be that as an industry, as a person, as a brand, we always have to be cognizant of what they currently think, what they know, and how they are going to interpret what we are saying. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Alex. Well, that's all we've got time for uh, for this edition. And indeed, for the whole of 2022, thank you uh, for listening not just to this podcast, but for all our podcasts throughout the year. The Walk podcast will take a couple of weeks off. We'll be back in January and we've got a big year planned next year. So watch this space. And of course, if you don't do so already, please do follow the Walk podcast on your favourite podcasting platform. Until January, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.